Welcome to our show, Holding Ground. My name is Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Each week, I'm joined by another therapist from the Anchor Light team to tackle important topics in mental health and psychotherapy. Our goal is to promote well being by normalizing mental health challenges. We are here holding ground for you every Monday morning at 9 a.m. on KKNW. Good morning. You're listening to Holding Ground here on KKNW, where we bring you a little bit of everything in the world of therapy and positive mental health every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I am your host, Laura Richer. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and the founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. I'm so excited to share with you today's guest, Brenda Zane. I believe that Brenda has created something truly remarkable and so very needed. When her child needed help, she realized that there was a lack of resources that were available to parents with a child who was fighting substance use disorder. So she set out on a mission to create the support and resources that she wished were available to her at the time. She's the creator of The Stream, which is a private online community for moms of kids who have substance use disorder. It is a positive space where parents can gather strength, hope, and resources. She is also the creator of Hope Stream, which is a podcast that provides education, resources, and hope to parents who have a child battling addiction to drugs or alcohol and is available on all major podcast platforms. Even if you don't have a child dealing with addiction but want to learn more about substance use disorder or self-care in general, you're definitely going to want to check Hope Stream out. So Brenda, welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So just to start, I would love if you could share your story and what brought you to creating this much needed online community. Yes. Well, my story could take up 17 hours of your (laughs) podcast, so I will give you the Cliff Notes version. Perfect. Yes. Which is, I think, fairly typical. Um, We had a, I, I have four boys, two of my own and two stepsons, and my oldest when he was 13, 14, started experimenting with some weed and a little bit of alcohol. And, you know, I think that happens for a lot of parents. That's kind of your freak out moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're wondering, is this going to be just experimentation? Is this going to be something longer term? And uh, over the course of his, you know, teens, so between 13 and 19, he uh, really fell into a lifestyle of not just substance use, um, starting with marijuana, moving to various pills, um, whatever he could sort of get his hands on, some cocaine, I mean, just about everything, and then really ending up um, becoming very addicted to Xanax. But he also fell into sort of an addiction to a very high risk lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And um, that meant running around with, you know, drug dealers and gang members and just really for, a, you know, a suburban kid that grew up in a, you know, fairly standard middle upper class neighborhood just completely took his dad and stepdad and, and me off of our, our rocker. Like we had no idea what was going on. Um, And we, as parents, you know, I never dealt with this before and I didn't know anybody else in our neighborhood or friend group or church group or anything who was dealing with this. And so you just sort of, you're, you're, it's like you're reaching out in the dark and, you know, all you can feel is scary things. Um, And so we went through that for 
uh, years. And eventually when he went through multiple treatments, I couldn't even list them all wilderness therapy, residential treatment, um, you know, his own private therapist, all of the things. Um, we got a phone call in 2017, actually today is April 12th. So in two days, it'll be four years. We got the phone call that he had overdosed and was in the hospital, Northwest hospital at Northgate. Um, and that he probably wasn't going to make it. He had overdosed twice actually that week on Wednesday. And then this was on Friday and he had overdosed on a combination of Xanax, uh, fentanyl, there was marijuana, alcohol, you know, just a cocktail of badness in his system. And so we uh, all went to the hospital and he was on life support. And he is one of the few who actually made it through that experience. And so I call myself the luckiest mom on the planet because I get to tell that story that he is still with us. He's doing incredibly well. He's you know, living a completely different lifestyle now, but it was a very dark period of life to go through alone. Um, and, and so that's why I do what I do now. And I can't uh, even imagine what, oh good. I'm so excited to have you share yeah. with this. Cause I can't even imagine what a parent is going through during that time. And I'm sure there's a, a roller coaster of emotions, but during that six years, when you were going through this experience, what, what kind of things, what kind of obstacles did you encounter for yourself? Uh, for myself, I think it was, well, there's a, a mixture of emotions the, the, the most common that I felt was guilt. So I must have somehow failed in my parenting because if I had been a good parent, my child wouldn't be doing this. I didn't really know anything about trauma at the time. And I had gotten divorced from his dad um, when he was 10. And we now know that that was a major, um, you know, source of his, uh, you know, beginning of, of needing to use substances to sort of get through that period. But on the outside, he appeared fine. So I didn't know that. Um, but for myself, guilt, for sure, shame, because there's a huge amount of uh, stigma in our society about addiction, especially for kids. So as parents, we kind of wear our kids as our um, report cards and our badges. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, look how good mine's doing. Well, if, you're, if your kid's going off to that college, then you must be an amazing parent. Right. So when you have a kiddo who's struggling and you know, they're, they're missing high school and, you know, the neighbors are saying, oh, you know, who's your son going to homecoming with, or who's he going to prom with, or where is he going to college? And your kid is out living, you know, under a tarp in the woods in Utah, going through, you know, treatment. That's just really hard to talk about. So there's an isolation factor that just settles in where you don't want to talk about it at all. You can't talk about it. Um, so it's incredibly isolating, uh, which then leads to all kinds of other, you know, health problems. Um, just, you know, I got very, very sick. I'm a stressed non-eater. So I was kind of a walking skeleton and, you know, aches and pains and just things that your body just can't handle that much stress. I mean, as you know, yes. <laughs> Laura, like, I don't need to tell you this, <laughs> um, but you know, your body just can't handle that. And so your body starts to say, whoa we got to, we got to do something about this because I'm shutting down basically. 
Yes. And I mean, and speaking of trauma, you're, and I think sometimes parents might not be aware of this, but you are being traumatized through this experience. And so you're having your own mental health issues that are starting to come up during this time. Yes, for sure. And, and you don't, I think what's so common and at least what happened to me, my experience is that I, you focus all of your energy and resources on your child because you're just trying to save their life. And especially today with fentanyl in the market, you know, I think maybe 15 years ago, if your kid was, you know, drinking and smoking some marijuana and probably taking a pill here and there, it wasn't, the urgency wasn't as critical because fentanyl wasn't in every single thing. And so now, even if a parent's like, yeah, you know, my 17 year old's experimenting, I think they're taking a pill here and there, you're living with this anxiety that that pill is probably going to have fentanyl in it and it could very easily kill your child. So I think the level of stress that parents are living under today is so elevated. And, um, you know, you just can't imagine every day Sometimes the only way I would know that my son was alive is because I would see him trying to sell something on offer up oh. to get money to buy more drugs. But that was a good day because at least I knew he was still alive. So and you knew he was okay. Yeah. 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 So that level of stress is just not good to live under. So speaking of fentanyl, I saw something on the news the other day that the DEA has issued a public warning that there's now something called carfentanil, which is a synthetic opioid that is a hundred yeah. times more potent than fentanyl, which yes, is 10,000 more potent yes. than morphine. It's like, yes. wow. Yes. Carfentanil is actually an elephant tranquilizer. Oh so my goodness. That, I mean, you don't really need to say anything more than that because if it's going to tranquilize an elephant, there you go. So yeah. knowing that teenagers are not working with a fully developed brain, and so therefore they don't have the best decision-making skills at time, what do you tell parents who are starting to notice like, hey, my kid might be experimenting and maybe this is kind of normal behavior, but then at the same time we have threats like carfentanil, which you know, one poor choice could be, be the end of your life. And so what should parents be looking out for right now? Well, if you, if you know that your kid is experimenting, it's just, it's time to sit down and just have a really adult conversation about it. So it's not, you need to stop doing this. You know, the blaming and threatening and punishing is not going to work with a teenager. I don't know that it really works with anybody, but, you know, just to sit down and say, Hey, you know, I saw this information, just like you just said, wow, I just, I read this article. I couldn't believe it. Or I listened to this podcast and I learned this. I didn't even know this. Do you, what do you know about this? What do you know about fentanyl? And you've got to come at it in a very um, adult kind of uh, consultative way and really try to understand what's going on with them. Um, That's the only way they're going to open up to you and, and they can, and they will, if you, if you come at it, I kind of think about it as like coming at it from the side versus the front and, and just say, I, I am really shocked about what I'm learning about this. What do you know about this? What's happening with your friends? Do you know anybody who's doing this? So getting genuinely curious with them uh, can open the conversation and, you know, if they're to the point where they're, you know, they're actively using um, and actively dependent on something, then it's, it's probably time to step in um, and get some professional help, but just 
having a really honest conversation with them is probably the best place to start. And I know you can, you created this community because you didn't, you couldn't find this resource when you were going through this, this experience with your son. And so some of the moms that come to you, what are they, what are they needing? How do you support them? They're mostly needing to know that they're not doing this alone, that they're not the only mom, just like I thought I was the only mom, which if you think about it logically, that doesn't even make sense because you know there's so many people who are struggling. But when you're in it, you just, you you feel like I'm the only one. I somehow have failed in my parenting. So what it, I think just having a community around you is just like, you can look to your left, you can look to your right and you can go, oh, she looks just like me. Like she's just a mom in, you know, suburban Minnesota or wherever it is. And she's got kids and her kids are awesome. And one of them's really struggling. Okay. I can do this. Yeah. Well, like you said, this is such a stigmatized disorder that people don't want to talk about it when, you know, everyone's like, oh, my kid's off to Cornell. You're like, well, my kid's in rehab. You know, most people aren't willing to have that conversation. (laughs) Yes, it's so true. And it's, um, I, you know, I, I'm tr- that's another thing that I'm really just trying to do is to, I don't want to say normalize it because I don't want it to be normal that kids go through this, but it kind of is, mm-hmm. you know, kids struggle with all kinds of different things. Um, substance use is just one of them. It's a really scary one because it's life and death. You know, some kids struggle with you know, overachieving. And if they don't get that A, then, you know, they struggle with anxiety and depression, which is also horrible and scary when you're a parent. Um, I think the level of fear is elevated when it, when your child, you know, ends up in substance use with substance use issues because of the life and death, immediate life and death threat that is there versus maybe another challenge that kids have. It might not be like, okay, today could be the day that I get the phone call that yeah. he overdosed. And the, I, I think the, the thing for parents to know is your kid could take their very first pill ever and die because it's got fentanyl in it. So this yeah. isn't like, oh, well, my kid's not addicted. This has nothing to do with addiction. This has to do with when you put something in your mouth that has a deadly level of fentanyl in it. And when I say deadly level of fentanyl, I mean about three grains of salt. That's how big a deadly dose is. Um, that is terrifying for parents. And so you've got to have people around you who aren't stigmatized by it, where you can say, my kid has been gone for three days and I don't know where she is, you know, yeah. and, and not have everybody freak out about it and just have them say, okay, we're with you. We're with you, you know. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, there's so many mental health struggles that people have. And for some reason, substance use gets very stigmatized that somehow it's a moral issue. Or mm-hmm. like you said earlier, they must have bad parents if they have substance use issues. When in fact, you know, people struggle with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, like you said, overachieving, you know, those high levels of stress. I mean, I think it's very important to normalize this as just one of those, you know, one of the things that that teens and adults deal with, and it's not a moral issue. Right. Yeah. Right. It's definitely not. And, you know, if you can read all the, the books and all that to learn that, but I, I think you just have to, as a parent, because you don't have a lot of time with this one, you've got to just get over that quickly. Like just 
okay, have your moment, set it aside, move on. Cause you don't, you honestly don't have time to sit around and feel guilty and hem haw around about it and bite your fingernails. Like you got to get on this quickly. So um, I'm trying to just, you know, and so I appreciate you letting me come on and do this. Just, I'm trying to find the biggest megaphone that I can to say, parents, don't, don't be, don't spend the time freaking out about this and feeling guilty and all that. Like do that in therapy in 20 years when your kid's better. Yes. Call Laura. <laughs> yeah. Call Laura when your kid's better. I think I'll do after years. the fact. Yeah. But for now you got to get on this. <laughs> yeah. How is education? I mean, even in, um, and I don't know if you know the answer to this question in school systems and kids, are kids aware of how life or death this is? Cause I, like you said, I think when we were kids, while there were substances, um, that people were taking, it wasn't the, and, and they were often deadly for some, for some people, but this like critical nature of you could get the wrong pill that you don't know what's in it. And that could be it. Do you that, think kids are aware of that? You know, I think there's pockets of um, places where there's education going on in schools, but what it is, is it's sadly the parents of kids who have died, mm. who get a fire in their belly and they're like me and they're like, I have to go tell every single person I can about this. And so they will take it upon themselves to go out to their local school district and have a conversation, but that's not enough. Obviously that's just like barely, 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 you know, putting one drop in the bucket. And I I wish that we could have some sort of a, a national mandate that would say every single middle school, starting in middle school, this needs to be in seventh, eighth grade, they need to start hearing this message. And so um, for anybody listening who has any sort of any platform that can reach, you know, middle school and high schoolers, I would encourage you to, to try to make that happen because it's so tragic when you hear about that kid who is just trying to fit in at a party, right? They just want to be cool and they just, you know, they don't know what to do. And so somebody offers them a pill and they're like, oh, okay. And they might not even want to take it, but they do. And it's that fake Oxy 30 that looks like it came out of a prescription bottle and it is not. So that's, that's what we're dealing with. And um, there are school programs for prevention, which are amazing. Um, But as far as this sort of what I'm calling the SOS, like the, the red beacon light, I don't, I don't think that's happening on a national level. No. Okay. Well, hopefully your message will get out more and more and other parents who have had to live through this because it, I can't even imagine what kind of nightmare it is to live through this experience. And so when you work with the parents who, who come to you, I know that you're a parent coach and you do advocacy work and you talk to them about taking care of themselves through this process. What do you, what do you tell them or how do you help them take the best care of themselves during these really incredibly challenging times? The, the way that I've learned to approach it, because especially moms are horrible at self-care. We put everybody else first. We, we say, okay, well, I'll deal with myself later. I'll take care of myself later. When this crisis is over, then I'm going to go to the doctor and figure out what that thing is. Or, you know, when this crisis is over, I'm going to actually go get my hair cut. I mean, it's mm. ridiculous. So the way I approach it now with them is to say, there's a lot of times when you feel like you can't do anything, right? You're watching your kid, you're, you're learning, you're in therapy, you're doing all the things. Taking care of yourself is 
the number one priority because who else can give your son or your daughter a healthy mom or dad? Nobody. Like you're the only one that can do that. And when your kid needs help and they come to you, you need to be of clear mind. You need to have some water in your system. You need to have some good food in your body. You know, if you're, if you're on empty, when your kid finally reaches that moment where they're like, okay, maybe I need to get some help. You, you want to be at a hundred percent, not at zero. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like walking around with your phone dead in your purse all day, every day. How is that going to help anybody? Right. So that's really how I approach it because saying you deserve it, you're worth it. That doesn't work. (laughs) I've just been, it doesn't work. Because they don't even care about that. They just want to save their kid. No, yeah. They just want to save their kid. Yeah. yeah. So it is it really is part of your treatment plan. Your child's treatment plan is is really the way I put it. It's like all the things that they can do, part of their treatment plan is you being healthy. So you you gotta do it. And what about for parents? Because I can imagine this would be extremely challenging, who have other kids that they're trying to still take care of and pay attention to, yet they have this life or death crisis that is just hanging in the background constantly. Yes, it's so hard because those other kids, um, it can be easy to have less focus on them. And they're also terrified, right? They're seeing a sibling in trouble and there's a lot of emotions there about I hate what you're doing, but I love you. And so I actually did a whole episode on this on my podcast recently, because it's such an issue, but it really is very important just to be really honest and open with them and go to them, obviously in an age appropriate way, but to say, listen, I'm scared too, right? It's okay to be scared that your, your brother or your sister's doing this and we're working on it. We're trying to get them some help, but not talking about it and just kind of stuffing it in the closet and hoping that nobody's noticing is not going to work. So you've really just got to be forthright about it, get potentially get them their own therapist to help them through some of this and just make sure that you're providing them some of the same normal opportunities that they had before all this was going on. But yeah, it's so hard for those siblings. Oh, wow. Well, this is such great information, Brenda. Please share with our listeners where they can find you if they want to learn more about the stream or Hope Stream. Sure. You can probably the easiest way is just my website, brendazane.com, or you can just Google search my name. Um, Hope Stream is the podcast. It's on all podcast players, H-O-P-E-S-T-R-E-A-M. And the stream is the streamcommunity.com. And uh, it's just a group of right now, we're about 75 women, all like really cool, badass moms who are trying to get through this. <laughs> They're just like, what's going on? Right. And, and we all just kind of hold each other up. And uh, we do, you know, lots of great self care. We do meditation, we have yoga classes. Um, so we just try to keep our bodies and our minds as healthy as possible. So, yeah. That's how you can find me. Very cool and very needed. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more to Brenda Zane about her online community, The Stream, and her podcast, Hope Stream. So stay tuned. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities. He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. 
And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Thanks for tuning in to our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Holding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing, our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. Do you make a positive difference in the world? Do you have a talent, philosophy, base of knowledge, product or service that you know could help a lot of people if only you could reach them? Join Alternative Talk 1150's family of broadcasters and start walking down a fruitful path. As host of your very own program, dial 425-653-1150 and find out just how affordable it can be to have a show on 1150 AM. That's 425-653-1150. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Holding Ground. If you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Brenda Zane, who's the creator of The Stream, which is an online space for parents of kids struggling with addiction. And Brenda also has a podcast hopes, uh, called Hope Stream. And Brenda, I love your podcast because it has so much information and so many resources to support parents. So I was curious, why did you decide to create a podcast? The podcast really, um, it was kind of funny. I, I had no plans of creating a podcast, but I was working with a business coach who was helping me try to figure out where to kind of steer my um, passion and my, I don't want to call it anxiety, but it kind of was like, I just felt this need to, to, t- to talk to a lot of people. So um, she advised you know, and she said, Hey, there's, there's a way that you can reach a lot of people with your message. If you want, it's called a podcast. (laughs) I was like, but I'm not a podcaster. And she's like, well, maybe you need to be. (laughs) So, um, that's why I created is just, I was doing one-on-one coaching, which I love to do because you really get to dive in deep, you know, with somebody in their story and their journey. But I, I felt this urgency to have a wider um, platform and a a bigger megaphone, I guess. And so I just thought I'm just going to start it and see what happens. And I'm, you know, a year later, 56 episodes and still, still going strong. So fantastic. (laughs) Well, I know you have some great information and also some really interesting uh, guests on your podcast. So who have you featured on your show? Some oh, of the highlights, gosh. not yes. all 56. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I have, um, I've been really, really fortunate to have a lot of people be willing to come on people like, uh, Carrie Wilkins, who is, uh, incredible PhD, um, therapist. She is a co-author of, um, beyond addiction, which I'm sure is probably a book that you have heard about. It's mm-hmm. kind of the Bible. So if there's any parents listening and you're like, what can I, what's the one book I should read if I've got a kid or even a, a spouse or somebody else who's struggling beyond addiction uh, is the book you want to get. And that's, um, so she was on, she was actually my, my third guest, which was so 
generous of her to do that. You know, I mean, Laura, you started a podcast at first. It's kind of like, how am I going to get people on? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It can be a little intimidating to 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 call people up. Um, I had uh, the CEO of Hazel and Betty Ford on. I had uh, Danielle Schaefer, who is a really big Instagram influencer. Um, Her brother actually passed away from an overdose. Uh, and she has been dealing with that. So I've really been trying to do a lot of work on siblings mm. um, because that is such a big issue. So she was on a sibling episode. Um, I just, you know, it's it's so incredible um, how generous people are with their time to talk about this issue. And I'm just really blessed to have them. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, I love that too. I mean, I think it, especially with substance use disorder, education is just so important. And so that's so great that you're getting these guests that are willing to come and talk about their experiences and, and share with other people. Cause that yeah. is where we're going to find the solution. Yep. Yep. So I know you said earlier in the show that you are one of the lucky ones that your son had a severe struggle and he was able to recover. And so I know you told us about the day in the hospital where they said, Hey, this does not look like the outcome is going to be good. What happened mm-hmm. from there? Well, from there, uh, it, you would think that that would be like the turning point, right? He would be like, well, well, that didn't go well. So let me try something else. But yeah. that's not how recovery works. And I want to just let parents know that it is not a straight line. Um, it can be a very up and down. It's like a roller coaster. And so he was in the hospital for a month because he basically had a stroke and a heart attack and every organ in his body shut down all at once. And so he was actually on the stroke unit at Northwest Hospital, which was very interesting because all the nurses were like, whoa, here's somebody who's 19 years old. Like we have all these 90 year olds on our, our unit and here's this kid. But he had to be there because he had, you know, brain damage where mm-hmm. he had to relearn how to walk, how to talk, how to tell time, how to dial a phone, how to you know, brush his teeth. Um, so he went through a very intense period of physical rehabilitation without even being able to address the substance use because, you know, he couldn't even remember why he was in the hospital. Mm. Every day he would wake up four or five times and look around and look at me and say, why, where am I? Why am I here? Um, and that went on for weeks. And wow. so when he got out, um, you know, I wanted... I got to the point where I was like, well, I don't want him to get out. Cause what do you do with the kid now? Like, what do you yeah. do with them after this? And so we were very fortunate. His father lived in California and a, a situation arose where he was able to um, have our son live with him. And so he got out of the hospital. And then a couple of weeks later, we packed up his car and drove. And one of the biggest reasons we did that was to get him out of Seattle, where all of the triggers were, all of the friends. Well, I use friends lightly. Sure. Um, all of the people that he hung out with. Yeah. <laughs> that way. Uh, and just getting away from that environment is so huge. You know, when they have to go back to the same place and the same friends, whether that's high school or whether that's just living life, it, it can be almost impossible for them to get out of that. And so getting him away, um, he entered a partial hospital rehabil- partial hospitalization program, a PHP. There's lots of acronyms, as you know, Laura, in this yes. industry, but um, PHP is partial hospitalization program. 
where basically you're at a, a treatment program from like 8.30 or nine in the morning until about four o'clock in the evening. And so he did that for about three months and then stepped down to an intensive outpatient, stepped down to, you know, all of the, the things um, while he was dealing with a lot of court issues. And so the, the thing I think to, for people to know is a, it's not a straight line. So it's going to, it's going to be very curvy. And he had times when he would still smoke some weed and he was even in the hospital, he was asking the nurses for oxy and, you know, it was crazy, okay. really crazy. Um, so he wasn't quite ready at that point. Did he just, no. was he out of options? And so he was going along with the program or how did you get him to, per, to participate in the PHP and the IOP? Or was there a part of him that was kind of ready? I think it, I think there was a little inch of him that was probably ready to go, but he, it was basically a court ordered thing. So mm. he had some legal stuff. A lot of these kids are like that. Um, there's the peanuts character. I think it's pig pen who, as he walks, there's just this cloud of like dirt behind them. Yes. And it's like that with, a, you know, it's like every time he would take a step forward, there's this huge cloud of dirt that would come up. So he had lots of legal issues to deal with. And so his attorney said, you know, if you're in a treatment program, yeah. it's going to look a lot better to the judge. And I was so grateful for that because it really did encourage him to do that. I mean, all of the doctors obviously at the hospital were like, dude, you've got to, you've got to get into some sort of something because you're not going to yeah. live. Right. He was walking around with this horrendous case of pneumonia. He had just overdosed twice in the same week. So, you know, he did have a little bit of a, like, okay, maybe I'll try this. Um, and I think just being in a completely different environment with the support of his dad, hugely important. I don't think he could have done it without that support from his dad. Um, and it's just one day at a time. It's like, okay, I'm going to go today. Okay. I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm going to show up tomorrow. And he showed up every single day to that program. And, you know, then he was able to start like okay, now my brain has enough little space. Maybe I could start thinking about getting a job. So he got a job, you know, and then after that it was, well, maybe I could enroll in one class at the community college. So it's, it's painstakingly slow. And I think as parents, we want stuff to happen quickly. It's like, okay, great. You're out of the hospital now. Great. Go get it enrolled in school full time. You know, <laughs> it's like, wait, we got to, we got to slow it down because they've, you know, he had started really using at around 14, 15. He, he was not, even though he was 19, his brain was not 19. So you have to remember that developmentally, they're not at the, you know, the age where, where their age marker is. Right. Um, so yeah, he, but he started just putting those little pieces in place and it took a long time, um, but he did it at a pace that was, you know, achievable for him and, um, and he's doing extremely well. So we just, you know, every day is a miracle. That is so fantastic. Yeah. Um, for parents, uh, you bring up a very good point that some parents want to be beyond this, which obviously there's yes. a desire to move past this. Um, but that can maybe their way of going about that might be an unintentionally sabotaging their child. So what are some things that you notice that parents maybe do who have the, you know, their child's best interest at heart, but maybe are working against them? I think the, that desire to 
just have everything be normal again mm. um, can be really, really strong. And not only for us, but we want that for them, right? We want them to have those experiences. I mean, you know, I remember my son being in treatment in Utah and I thought he's never going to go to prom. Mm. Now, in hindsight, that seems so asinine that I even thought that it just seems so insignificant. And I think now in the, in, you know, we have COVID to kind of put perspective on life as well. Um, but at the time, those things seem really important. I want him to go to prom. I want him to have all these experiences. I want him to have the team experience of riding on the bus to play the baseball game, you know, and, and so we push and we might, um, we might, prioritize our desires for them and our desires for us to be able to say, yes, he's going off to this college. Isn't that amazing? He's going to be majoring in this. And really in the end, who cares? Yeah. Who cares like about any of that? You got to have them healthy and alive. So I think parents' expectations and our outcomes that we put out there for them can really impact our decisions whether that's seeking treatment or wanting them to come home from treatment. I know a lot of families struggled during COVID. It was like, oh my gosh, I just sent my kid to wilderness therapy and COVID hit. I want him to come home, which was actually like the opposite. You want to keep them out in the woods in the middle of nowhere because they're not yes. going to get COVID out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Much more opportunity um, to social distance. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you want them close at a time like that. So it takes a lot of hard work. And I want to acknowledge yeah. that for parents, that it takes a lot of work on yourself to be able to put yourself aside and your own desires and outcomes aside and really focus on what's best for my kid. And that might not be what society says is, is the best thing. So we can really trip ourselves up that way. Yeah. And I think it's important too, to acknowledge that every parent has a dream for their child and their child's life. And when something happens like this, where, like you said, that, that, you know, my son isn't going to go to prom or he isn't going to have the normal high school experiences and that there's, there's grief that is associated with that. And that the parents have to do their own work to process that grief. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I would say, just keep it in perspective. And, you know, sometimes you can think back like to their second or third birthday and did the cake turn out the way you wanted it? Cause at that time, right. When they're two or three, those are the things that are important and who came to the party or who didn't come to the party. And, and it's the same thing now. And, you know, he, the great thing is like he graduated from high school while he was in treatment in Utah and he has that experience to tell, you know, and like we put off sending him to wilderness there because it was winter. And I'm like, I can't send my kid out to live in the woods when it's February in the middle of Utah. Mm -hmm. And now he brags about that. Like somebody will say, you know, oh, I went to wilderness. And he's like, but did you go in February? <laughs> right? Like that's a badge of honor for him. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm thinking it's the worst thing in the world. Sure. And so I think that's where it helps too, to have a community of other parents to say, wait, how are you doing this? And how are you thinking about this? And here's my experience. Like, it's not the worst thing to send them in February, send them in February. Like yeah. those kids, they get a whole different experience. Cause it's not fun. You know, it's not like nice weather and they're out there doing the camping thing. It's like hardcore. So I think it's just really important to have that perspective. And the only way you can get that is if you're interacting with other parents who are doing the exact same thing that you're doing. 
Yes. Cause you're probably, I would imagine always struggling with, am I doing the right thing? Am I making the decision? Is this going to further traumatize them to be in wilderness camp, you know, in the middle of February, is yeah. that the right thing to do? Oh, hundred percent. And I, I was absolutely convinced. And I, we worked with the educational consultant who are people who help you make these decisions and choices. And I was convinced he would never, ever, ever speak to us again. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to take this risk to send him knowing that he'll probably never speak to me again. And our educational consultant was like, well, I've been doing this for 25 years and I can tell you that's never happened, but maybe it'll happen to you. Right. Yeah. Just like you, you just assume the worst. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, you just have to, you have to go with your gut sometimes. And sometimes that's really, really hard. Yeah. So having a community to be there with you to say, I've been through this too. And, you know, most likely your child is going to continue to speak to you and maybe even really appreciate that you push them to get the help that they needed. Yes. Just, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. For me to be able to tell the moms in the stream to say, you know, there'll be a mom who will post something. Oh, my son, you know, we had him picked up last night by transporters two o'clock in the morning, which I can tell you is a very traumatic experience yeah. for parents as well as kids. Um, and for me to be able to say, I did the same thing. And guess what? He now wants to go work in wilderness therapy, right? Yeah. To be able to hear, if I had had somebody tell me that, it would have completely changed my experience completely. Because I'm sure your child is telling you that you're ruining their lives and that, you know, they don't want to do these things because of course they want to continue with their addiction and continue what they're doing. So you're also getting, without the support of someone else, you're getting your child actually telling you, I don't want oh, this. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> you're you're yeah. a horrible mom. <laughs> yeah. No, no good parent would do this. You had me kidnapped in the middle of the night. Like you should be arrested for this. Mm. You know, they'll tell you all of those things. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're getting that barrage to be able to turn to your, your tribe of moms who are like, yep, that happens. Don't worry about it. Like that's going to happen. That's healthy. He's doing what he there. He's just, that's exactly normal Yeah. to have. That is really, really helpful. So have you noticed during COVID that there are new challenges that parents have been dealing with that around, um, helping a child with substance use disorder. I know you said kind of people feel fearful to let them go to treatment. Is there other things that have come up now that we've all been in lockdown and kids don't have a lot to do? Yes, for sure. Well, I think one, one thing that's kind of good and bad is that a lot of parents had their kids around them where if you have a kid who's struggling like this, you tend not to see them very much because they don't want to be at home because they can't use at home usually. Um, and they're just, you know, there's usually some tension and some, some issues going on around with the parents, right? So the kids aren't home a lot. Then you have COVID and all of a sudden kids don't have school to go to. They're having to do it online. So there's this, the, the you know, the forced togetherness. Mm -hmm. um, parents were starting to see things that they might not have seen. So in a way it was good because some parents started to recognize issues that they might not have recognized for a longer period of time yeah. and they were able to intervene. But on the other hand, kids, you know, they don't comply, right? So it's like, yeah, they're supposed to be at home with you doing their school online, but they log in, they, you know, show up for whenever they're taking the attendance and then they turn the camera off and then they leave. And when they're going out to try and find whatever substance their brain is telling them they need to use, 
they're not wearing a mask and they're not social distancing yeah. and they're not using hand sanitizer, right? So there's there was a certain level of health concern in addition to, so this is something that I really think that the general public doesn't realize is for these parents, they were already terrified for their child's health and safety every day. Then you layer on COVID. Mm. It, it just added a whole nother level of panic and fear and anxiety that, that anybody who had kids who weren't struggling with that didn't feel. So then you have the treatment issue. And I had so many moms who are like, okay, my kid, now I'm seeing this. I've talked to them. They're actually willing to go to treatment. Well, guess what? Treatment programs are still open, but they only have the half half the number of beds available because they used to have two kids in a room and now they can only have one. Mm. So there was just a, a um, supply issue. If you want to kind of boil it down to the nuts and bolts of it is, well, we can't take your kid now because we don't have room. Call us in two weeks. It's like, okay, <laughs> my kid's not going to sit here and wait for two weeks. Yeah. If they're ready for treatment, you might have an hour one hour window where they're willing to go. You got to jump on that. Yeah. So yeah, there's been a lot of a really, really challenging things for parents to navigate through this or just getting them to treatment. Maybe you found a program, they're willing to go, they have a bed, perfect. Well, now how am I going to get them there? Because if I put them on an airplane then I have to get on an airplane, then we have to quarantine for two weeks before they'll let us into the treatment program. So, I mean, the hurdles have just been massive. Wow. How much control do parents have if their child does not want to go into treatment? Say like if you have a 15 year old, are you able to still get them into treatment at that point in time? Or do they have enough say to, to reject it? Oh, that's that we could have a whole, <laughs> that's another episode. <laughs> that's a whole nother episode. The short answer is um, it depends on your state's age of consent. So in Washington state, I'm sure you know, this is age of consent is 13. So after 13, as a parent, you don't have any say in what's happening with your child's health care. You cannot get information from their doctor, from their therapist, so, unless obviously, you know, they're a threat to themselves or to someone else. So after the age of 13, um, if your child is struggling as mine was, so I was in fear for my child's life. I knew he was um, using drugs. I was pretty sure he was selling drugs. I knew he was hanging out with people who had, were, you know, parts of gangs. Um, and we were really in fear of his life and he was 16. So if they're not 18 yet, you are still legally responsible. So it depends on your state, which is why states like Utah um, are really great for, for treatment because their age of consent is 18. So what you do is, um, what you can do, I should say, is you can have them in treatment in a state like Utah, and there's other states as well, where uh, you basically assign power of attorney to that program for your child. So they are basically, uh, um, I don't want to say a citizen, what is the word, but basically they're, they're, yeah. So in that state, then they have to stay in that treatment program because in Washington state, they wouldn't have to. So it can be very complex, which is why I really recommend working with the educational consultant because they know all of the laws and they know all of the programs and the states and the age of consent, which is so overwhelming. Just if you're fully functioning parent and you're not dealing with this, it's confusing to understand. 
when you're a parent of a kid and you haven't slept for two years or three months or whatever it is, and you're in a state of panic, you can be really vulnerable to treatment programs who may not be as, um, you know, forthright as they should be. Mm -hmm. So I really recommend getting a neutral kind of third party to involved to help you through that decision, which is why a lot of kids get trans when we say transporter kids will call it gooned. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> you have a transport company who comes to your house and they're very good. So I don't want this to sound like it's a big, scary thing. It's emotionally, it's very challenging, but from a safety perspective, it's the best way to get them there because these are trained interventionists. They have psychology training, like they really help the kids through this process. And you just say, listen, we're giving you time to take a break. We're getting away from all of this. You're going to go with these two guys. They're going to take you on an airplane you're going to go to Utah and right at two o'clock in the morning, that's really scary when you wake up and your parents are in the room and there's these two guys that look like NFL football linebackers yeah. who are going to take you on an airplane, right? It's so confusing, but I actually just heard it. This is, this is why I think a community is so great. One of the moms said yesterday, she posted that her son was transported. She said, we finally made the move. The transporters were so awesome. They, they told him, dude, you know, you can just tell everybody that you're a, uh, you know, famous Instagrammer or a famous YouTuber guy and we're your bodyguards. And that's <laughs> why you have us with you, right? They're so good at it. And oh, so that's it's hilarious. not as bad for the kids as you imagine it's going to be. And parents can take their kids to treatment too. It's not that they have to go this way, but if they're not going to agree to go, this is kind of the best way to do it. <laughs> Wow. I mean, those are such tough choices to have to, to make. I just, I can't even imagine. I think it's so cool that you have created this community. And I know that your son is now in recovery and he's thriving and he even wants to work in addiction. Um, but I know also for a lot of people, this is a really traumatic experience. And so I, I would imagine not everyone wants to stay involved uh, in this work once their their child has recovered and they, they can move on from it. So what keeps yeah. you coming back to this work? What inspires you to, to continue supporting parents? The, the, the fact that I um, went through it alone and that if a, if a parent and a mom in particular, because for some reason, moms tend to take the lead on this, dads are right. absolutely involved, but moms tend to kind of, you know, when somebody drives point on something, yeah. moms are the ones that tend to, to drive point on this. And if the mom is healthier, there's better outcomes for the kids. And so, you know, everybody kind of finds their way to make an impact in their world. And some people work in prevention and they really like put all their resources into helping kids never get into this situation in the first place, which is amazing. And then there's people like my son who have been through it and they can have their impact in their own way. And I just thought my way that I can have an impact to help kids get healthier is to work with the moms. And the other, you know, my, my sort of bigger North star is that moms going through this lose themselves mm. and they often end up having to quit their jobs. They often end up very unhealthy physically. And so when that happens, and this is happening to millions of moms, this is not like, oh, there's like 5,000 moms that's happening to this is millions of moms. Women are getting, you know, impacted from a career standpoint, employers, you are, if you're an employer listening and you're not doing something for the parents of 
you know, your, your employees who have kids who are struggling, you are missing out. I guarantee you, I cost my company thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the business trips that I missed because I was having to go to court or I was having to stay home with my son because I didn't, you know, know where he was or what he was doing. So just the impact for women in particular on the world, the world is missing out on their talents because they are so incapacitated by the fear and the anxiety and the work of trying to get these kids healthy. So that's kind of my bigger purpose is we've got to keep moms healthy so that they can deal with this so that they can continue on with their life, you know, and contribute to their employers and to their passions and their purpose. And so what can we do? You bring up such a good point with employers. What could employers do better or what can society do better to support families who are are struggling with addiction? Well, for employers, I think it's recognizing it um, just like, you know, employers have great, amazing DEI programs now, and they're really recognizing the needs of specific communities within their employer base. I think they need to recognize you have a community within your employee base that are hurting and struggling and you don't know it because it doesn't show up on the outside. It doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter what level they are in your organization. If you're an Amazon employee at level two or level 12, you're you're still going to struggle with this. And so Mm -hmm. you've got as an employer, you've got about 20% of your employees who are struggling with this and they have kids whose lives are at risk. And so when they're sitting in a meeting, I guarantee you a good chunk of their brain is not at that meeting. It is on, where's my kid right now? Are they putting fentanyl in their body today? So having something, whether that's through your health insurance, make sure that there are resources for them And that they don't feel stigmatized because I was lucky enough to have a great employer who I could say, listen, I don't know where my son is today. I cannot get on this airplane and fly to Chicago for the next Mm -hmm. three days. I just can't. And he was amazing about that. But if I hadn't had that, what would I have done? You know, I would have had to fake illness so that I could stay home. So I think it's being aware and giving them a space to be able to, to work with that and give them some resources. I mean, in 20%, that is such a big number of people that you might be totally unaware are are dealing with this issue. Yes. I would guarantee you are absolutely unaware because they will not talk about it. Yeah. Well, we are out of time for today. I could talk to you for hours that you have shared such great information. Tell our listeners one more time where they can find you if they want to connect with you or get more resources. Yes, just go to my website, brendazane.com or do a Google search on my name and you'll find the the podcast is there. The community is there. It's probably the easiest way is just uh, my website, brendazane.com. Great. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. We'll be back next week for another episode of Holding Ground on KKNW. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. We'll see you next week.